0: It's hard to fathom for many being 21 years old, flying a multi-million dollar machine headlong into the battlegrounds of Vietnam, much less doing it with nothing more than a 38 revolver to defend you and your crew. The life of a dust off pilot during the Vietnam war with nothing but a red cross painted on your helicopter to protect you from the vicious enemy below. Truthfully though, that cross offered little protection, often becoming the very target on the backs of those it was intended to protect. That was Doug Peterson's life. Myriads of missions in danger where death was always at his door. The pure exhaustion and lack of breaks between missions was enough to end the career of many dust-off pilots. But Peterson survived and went on to serve a distinguished career as an aviator an aviation instructor in the United States Army. His survival was greatly beneficial to this nation as he went on to help veterans even outside of his military service. But we'll let him tell you more about that. Here he is, the one and only Doug Peterson.
1: The Veterans Project is a comprehensive essay capturing the legacies of our warfighters, caregivers, and civilians who have stepped forward in defense of our patriotic principles in an effort to capture their stories and to never forget the staggering sacrifices our nation's finest. This is the Veterans Project podcast, where our legacies are the mission. Here is your host, Tim K. Welcome to the Veterans Project podcast.
2: My name is Tim K. I'll be your host as always. With me, uh, first of all, Doug. I'd like to just say welcome home. Uh, it's an honor to have you here with us. We've got Doug Peterson, a pilot dust off crew uh from the Vietnam War. Doug, thanks for being here. It's an honor to be here in your house and I appreciate you a lot.
3: Thank you very much, Tim. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah,
2: it's it's well it's special to be here, Doug, and, and you know, anytime I get a chance to talk to our mm-hmm. Vietnam warriors, I always want that opportunity because you guys were the first to welcome us home. When we got back uh from Iraq, I remember flying into the airport in Bangor, mm-hmm. Maine. And uh, most of the guys that were standing there waiting to shake our hands were Vietnam veterans. Mm -hmm. And that really meant a lot to us. Doug, why do you you think that is? Why do you think they're most prevalent?
1: uh,
3: Well, obviously, I think that the welcome home that the Vietnam veteran did not get, we saw the disservice of Americans uh, treating other Americans that way, wasn't the way to bring home our American heroes. And so I think that uh, the Vietnam veterans uh, that participated in that welcoming home of the other soldiers from the various other conflicts were just a way of showing that this is the way uh, it should be done. And we're, we're we're leading by example. And even though we didn't receive it doesn't mean that we shouldn't treat the others that are coming home with the respect and honor that they deserve.
2: Let me ask you, since we're on the subject, and we'll go back through your life, obviously, and talk about your childhood, but do you feel like you got that from the World War II veterans? Did you feel that you got treated that way? How, how were you guys treated by the World War II veterans?
3: Uh, I don't I don't recall any specific instance where uh, a World War II veteran ever welcomed us home. I think that collectively the United the American people Uh, regardless of their veteran status, whether they were a veteran or not, did not welcome us home. In fact, uh, when we were leaving Vietnam to come home, it was clear to us uh, that we were to get out of our uniforms as quickly as we could hit stateside. Uh, Now, it was obvious uh, who we were. I mean, we didn't blend in with the populace very well, but the mere fact is that we needed to get out of the uniform as quickly as we could so that we didn't uh, uh, give anybody else an opportunity to degrade us or co- you know, talk down to us. We just needed to get home and uh, get on with life.
2: I, I can't imagine a scenario where you're risking your life so heavily, especially as a man like you did. Um, in a position on a dust off crew as a pilot. Um, I can't imagine that feeling of coming back, having gone through what you went through, watching all the young men uh, pass or get wounded, and then for you to come home to that, that's got to be an incredibly uh, disturbing feeling. It also, it's just, it's gross.
3: Well, it is. It was a dis disservice to our military, but you know we were we were so young. I mean, we were twenty one, twenty two year old kids that were coming back, and you know we really I'm not sure we knew uh, how bad it was that being treated that way. We were kind of resilient uh, young young guys that were coming back, and we just kind of I think. Not blow it off. That's not what I'm trying to say. I mean, it did did mean something to us that we weren't uh, being welcome. Well, of course, we didn't see that. I mean, we saw movies of the World War II guys coming back and, and getting recognized with the big parades in towns and so forth. And we saw that. But I don't know that we—I mean, at least for me, and I, and I can't speak for others, but at least for me, I just— I just wanted to get on with my next assignment, and let's just move on. Let's just get from one place to the next, and let's get on with business.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. So, Doug, we'll backtrack uh, back through your life and talk about what brought you down that path. What do you remember about, I mean, obviously, being in a pilot position, you're an incredibly intelligent human being to be able (laughs) to fly one of those aircrafts. Uh, I know when I was first getting in the Army, I was kind of thinking about that, but then I thought, oh, I'm gonna have to have a career in the army if mm-hmm. I do that. And I wanted to kind of be a one and done. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted maybe a tour or a two, and that would be it. Um, but I knew that if I kept staying in, the chances for the army to mess with me would grow mm-hmm. and grow. <laughs> so, so what? Uh, what led you down that path? What do you remember about your childhood and where'd you grow up?
3: Well, I, I predominantly grew up in Virginia Beach, so you would think I'd be in the Navy. Uh, but no, uh, I didn't uh, choose that. I love Virginia Beach. <laughs> yeah, I lo- uh, Virginia Beach was a great, great place to grow up. Yeah. And, you know, I had, there was a lot of uh, military influences with the Navy, uh, Little Creek and uh, Oceana Naval Air Station. I mean, they were all big influences, though my dad was in, in the Merchant Marines during the war. Uh, I, you know, I, we, I didn't grow up in a military background. So after uh, high school, I went on to a military prep school, prepping for college. So that was my first military experience was going to a prep school in Virginia. And, and I liked the discipline. I liked the regiment of the, of the Corps of Cadets that we had at the school. And then I went on to Virginia Military Institute Yeah, Yeah. so I got uh, to experience, again, the rigors of the discipline and the respect and the honor code, and all of that just rang true to me, and it just felt natural. That's really what I had found my niche uh, through the military experiences that I was in. Now academically I wasn't doing so great. It um, <laughs> happens to the best of us. And so what it, what then what I discovered was the the army was having Of course this is uh uh 1967 1968 time frame and of course the the Vietnam War was going on hot and heavy by this time and it was on the news and there was a lot of helicopter in the news footage and I discovered that there was a program that the Army had called High School to Flight School. So if you had a high school diploma and you could pass the flight aptitude test and a flight physical, then they would bring you into flight school as a warrant, in the warrant program. So I left VMI in the uh, second semester of my sophomore year and went through all the tests and so forth and got qualified to uh, go on to flight school and and enlisted in in april of 1969.
2: Mm. what what were your thoughts when you were going through uh vmi because obviously is it virginia military institute is mostly marine corps right officers Mm. don't most no no they go on to other branches did you know that you wanted to be an
3: officer well, I didn't know I mean certainly that's one of the reasons I went to VMI because I knew that at the end of a four-year college or that I would uh potentially, not guaranteed, not like the military academy, but uh potentially leave there as a second lieutenant.
2: Mm, okay. So, did you was it uh, w- were you sure that you wanted to be a pilot was it the academics that kind of gave you that idea of you didn't want to hang around too long at VMI?
3: Well I mean I just knew I saw the writing on the wall and I saw another opportunity that was available to me and one was to fly and I thought that would be exciting to do and so I just decided to pursue that. That's how I really got my interest. I I mean no one in my family had any aviation experience so it was really pretty new to all of us but I just felt that uh, was a great opportunity for me if I could get in and and do that.
2: Do you, you know we talked earlier you said that you're you had no military experience in your background but obviously there are things that lead to that. Do, how were your how were your parents with you? Was there a lot of structure at home?
3: Yeah, my dad was pretty much disciplinary and so I mean there was a lot of structure. I mean we had I, well I, I I forgot that you know we were uh when I was in the Boy Scouts, the Boy Scouts transitioned over to the Sea Explorers, so there was an expo- uh, so the Sea Scouts is what we called them. So I had some military, that as a high schooler, so to speak, where we would you know we had that. Uh, in, my, in fact, my father was the skipper of the Sea Scout of oh, okay. uh, ship. So. So that was also an introduction into the military life.
2: Mm, okay, and were those experiences at home pretty pleasant? Did you did you enjoy did you enjoy your home life growing up?
3: Uh, yeah, that was it was okay. I mean, it was typical American home life. My dad traveled a lot. He was a pharmaceutical salesman. Okay, I called him a drug pusher. <laughs> <laughs> I but, bet he loved that. <laughs> well, I mean, I, he, he's long past. But yeah. uh, my mother was a, a elementary school teacher for forty years. Wow! So, I mean, it was a good. And I have a, a, a younger uh, sister, and uh, my, my younger brother just passed away from COVID uh, oh, like two months ago. But so I so we had a pretty generic, average family. Yeah.
2: So forward track to flight school What's that experience like and it wasn't at fort rucker at the time right no it was somewhere else
3: so after basic training which was in fort polk louisiana oh i'm sorry <laughs> yeah in in uh in may and june oh my gosh and, even worse <laughs> so it was uh, it was exciting times at in la lower <laughs> alabama i mean uh louisiana uh, not so, the not the glitzy LA. <laughs> no, so then uh, we you know we packed up and came to Fort Walters, Texas, for our primary helicopter training out in uh, Mineral Wells. Mm-hmm. So we spent five months there with a small uh, trainer helicopter, and we were broken down into groups. If you were a tall individual, you got tra- you learned in one helicopter. If you were short kind of guy and then you got into a different helicopter and we spent five months uh learning how to hover and fly around and navigate and and that kind of thing
2: i mean that's that's got to be pretty cool for that experience i'm sure it's it kind of feels slow at times i'm sure going through the experience and you feel like you're probably taking a lot of baby steps but
3: oh yeah i mean it's you, you if you can keep it within a football field the first week, you're doing well. <laughs> so, so, I mean, it, and it's really, it's a, the transition of learning how to fly. I mean, there's three sets of controls in a helicopter, and they're all the same regardless of the helicopter. And so the instructor would only allow you to have one of those three, and he would have the other two until we finally graduated to having all three sets of controls, and then we were allowed to solo and of course, f- flying solo was an experience because you didn't have the weight beside you of somebody else in the helicopter, so the helicopter was a lot lighter, and there was nobody to talk to uh, and ask questions. You were just uh, told to go fly around the traffic pattern and come back and land. Wow! So that was uh, that was pretty. And then, of co- and then in, in the tradition back then was after anybody soloed, we would go to the Holiday Inn pool and we would throw the individual into the pool on their first solo day <laughs> so that that's was cool. pretty that was pretty cool experience. that's a cool so yeah. that's yeah. a cool experience
2: yeah. so do you did you enjoy that overall did you enjoy flight uh, school and going through that oh
3: yeah i enjoyed the the aviation experience and of course we had military type classes and so we had All of that uh, being drilled into us, I mean, it strictly wasn't aeronautics. I mean, there were some things with military history, military, you know, procedures, and we would be marching everywhere. And so, I mean, that that whole disciplinary uh, environment was, I mean, it was just right up my alley. I just enjoyed doing that.
2: That's cool. Do you uh, feel like in those training exercises, were there things that you could connect two-year experiences in Vietnam that really played out when you were learning and training? Well,
3: not not at uh, Fort Walters, not at the primary. That was primarily uh, just to get you uh, able to fly a helicopter. It didn't give you any of the tactics or any of that sort of thing. We would pick that up when we went on to Fort Rucker, Alabama for the final four months. Flight school is a total of nine months. Okay. And at the end of the end of the sequence, we would do uh, eight eight weeks of combat skills training. So two months was at the end of the uh, time frame of flight school was two months. So we had four weeks of combat skills where we would go and do formation flying and we would land in landing zones and practice this and practice that. The last four weeks uh, were uh, specialized if you were selected you could be going into a specialized uh, advanced tactical training and in fact that's what I got the opportunity I got to fly gunships and so I got to fly a B model Huey uh, that had a in some configurations that had twin uh, rocket uh, launchers so the 2.75 rockets on each side Uh, sometimes I flew one with a 40 millimeter chunker Ooh. grenade launcher on the nose and then there are other times where i flew where i had twin mini guns oh nice and so we got to go fly and go down range and shoot up targets and whatever the case may be for about four weeks
2: does that add in a whole new dynamic of complexity with the work of like both firing and maneuvering
3: yeah a lot of times the uh, depending on the armament so the pilot, the one that's actually flying the helicopter, uh he has to bring the sights down into the target. So he has to move since the rocket uh launchers are fixed, they're not variable. Uh he has to maneuver the helicopter's attitude and yaw position to get on target. So then he would control that. Now the minigun and the 40 uh Millimeter grenade launcher. The the co-pilot, since those were slave to a sighting system, the co-pilot or who the person not flying the helicopter would then uh, use those. So it was a, it was a joint effort. Oh, okay. Yeah, just one. It wasn't a single pilot type thing
2: gotcha okay but you're still having to deal with another person you know where you're having to set it up set up the shop for them essentially yeah yes yeah Yeah. it's kind of almost in a way a spotter yeah well yeah yeah, exactly yeah so uh when you go to a fort rucker those experiences were probably imperative and in and would probably make a mark on your career and time in sure, Vietnam.
3: Sure. I mean uh obviously uh Fort Rucker we're we're getting closer to the end. We're becoming more comfortable flying. It it's becoming second nature, so to speak. I mean certainly we're not we're walking away with thousands of flight hours yet. I mean a couple of hundred hours and we think we're god's gift to aviation <laughs> uh, but but we isn't that we, how it always works <laughs> yes. but it, but at that time we had you know a lot of flight school classes going in consecutively i mean so you had large groups of warrant officer candidates is what what we were and at the end of once we got our uh, the day before we get our wings we get our warrant officer bar so we were promoted to warrant officer one Uh, So we're a W-1, and then the next days, since officers are the only people that can have aviator wings, so that's the reason you had to do it one day, and then the second day was when you got your wings. Mm, Okay.
2: So when you got through that experience, do you remember any lessons uh, when you were at Rucker that really maybe impacted you technically, or maybe just leadership there that uh Help, nothing
3: nothing rings a bell Brother, i mean we're yeah. still talking 52 years ago Yeah. So <laughs> 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 it's, been, it's been a little while since since i can remember i mean there's little memories of little things we did but nothing uh, just you know fun stuff i guess right I don't, I don't know
2: gotcha so how soon was it after that where you were well, you really knew you were going
3: to Vietnam. Yeah, we, well, in fact, during the interview process of going into uh, flight school to, to be to be even to cu- before I came into the army, I had to go before an army board of officers, and as I was going through the interview process, they clearly stated, "You know that where you're going after flight school." So, may, they made it very clear that you know this is where you're going to be going because of the need. And I'd, I had no issues with that. So, yeah, right after flight school, which was in May of um, the first week in May of 1970, uh, within probably four to six weeks, I was uh, on the way to Vietnam.
2: Mm. you know you're headed to Vietnam. Did you have any thoughts about what that meant, or was that just A to B for you?
3: Uh, as I recall, it was— it, Well, it wasn't so much A to B. I mean, I was, I mean, that's why I came in, you know, I mean, I saw this on the news and the helicopters and what they were doing, and I was anxious to get started in this career. Now, what I was going to end up doing, I mean, I had no really concept of that. Again, we're still talking a Mm 21-year-old, and I I was one of the older ones, Uh, and so I mean Crazy. a lot of these guys are really truly a high school to flight school so a 19 year old or an 18 year old helicopter pilot wow Now you think about what an 18 or 19 year old is doing today <laughs> and in comparison and it's, he's not Probably command. on TikTok.
2: Yeah, he's probably on TikTok. He's,
3: yeah, he's not doing uh he's not doing advanced tactical maneuvers uh in a multi-million-dollar helicopter with four other pe- three other people on board, Jeez. probably not doing that. Uh, so it was uh, it was an experience, a, just a transition to get over there. And of course, the environment in South Vietnam was the weather was different than it was in Alabama or Virginia Beach or wherever the case may be. So I mean, it was a little it was hot and it was humid and. There, there was a particular smell that's un- undescribable uh, that was there. You could just kind of sense. I mean, you just knew that you were someplace different.
2: I bet you'd never forget that smell. I don't think so. Yeah, you smelled it now. You know exactly what that was.
3: Yeah, I. Yeah, I'm not going to say what it is, but yeah. but I know what it is. Yeah, and uh, it wasn't pleasant yeah yeah <laughs> i have a feeling i know what you're talking mm-hmm. about
2: <laughs> so you you get to vietnam what's the what's the uh, assignment things change for you you're you're yeah, supposed to be yeah, flying uh, weapons systems. Uh, yeah i'm
3: flying i'm supposed <laughs> to be a gunship pilot so yeah. so we get to the replacement battalion which uh, whenever you come in the country you're you go over to this replacement battalion and they sort out the needs Say, okay, we need three guys over here, we need ten guys over there, and they and I was a pilot and they so I spent like two days at this replacement battalion. They called me up and said, Okay, we need you to be over here at the dust-off. And I said, Oh, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm I'm a, a gun pilot. And go, No, 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 you don't understand. You're a now a dust-off pilot. And I didn't really know what dust-off was until I Found out that it was the medical evacuation helicopter company, which happened to be directly across, you know, not not a half a mile away from where I was sitting, so I would seen them flying in and out. So I mean, I could see them doing their missions. So they, for the needs of the, for the needs of the army, did I go over and be, uh, you know, uh, a dust off pilot? And, and and I really do believe that that was. Um, the right thing yeah
2: yeah i do i do too did you did you did that add something different into your mindset though were you did that upset you did you want hmm. to fly weapon systems or were you like whatever it takes
3: no no I, I mean once i got over there and i saw really what what that meant that mission was is so that we could pick up the injured out of the fields of vietnam and take, get them to medical facilities I just said, you know, this is this is much better, mm-hmm. much more rewarding uh life than to shoot up uh, a bunch of rockets and whatever else, you know, indiscriminately in in some cases. So I just said this was the really the where I needed to be. Mm.
2: How how bad at the time was it? Being a pilot in Vietnam and being a specifically a dust off pilot?
3: Well, you know, there was a reason there was a huge need for dust off pilots because a lot of dust off pilots were getting injured or killed. Mm. So there was, uh, since dust off was an unarmed uh, helicopter going into uh, conflicts and in, in where there's intense gunfire, or in some cases, that it You know, it was just kind of an an eye opener, for especially for a young young kid, young young man uh, that. And I hate to keep on stressing that, but I just think about the 22-year-old today, and (laughs) would he be willing to get shot at? So that and that was another thing that I took me a long time to figure out is why somebody on the ground was trying to shoot me. Mm. I'm going. I hadn't done anything to them. Yeah. Why were they trying to kill me? And it, you know, I I don't know that you ever get over that. But mm. you, we do recognize the fact that there are, we're in an area that there's a lot of conflict and there's a lot of turmoil, uh, politically and uh, whatever. And we were just part of that. But it was it was an interesting time.
2: What was that wake-up call like when you first flew missions and you first took contact? Where did you realize, did that click for you? Was it, was it an immediate thing where you're wondering, why is this happening?
3: Well, I mean, right very soon after I started flying, I was not, I was not a pilot in command yet because I didn't have much time in the country. And so I was flying with another pilot in command, which we called PIC, so I was flying with another p i c and he uh, and we were up in this area and we started taking multi you know a significant number of gunfire and took a number of hits where we were shot down and and the only thing that I can really recall out of that mission was him he was taking he was doing all the flying uh, for the most part and so I remember landing and him telling me to grab the there's a cryptic radio that was up in the nose compartment to run and grab it and get on this helicopter so we could go home Hmm. because another helicopter had landed to pick us up and so i mean it was really quick and it's almost like a blur because i was just so new in country and you got you got shot down
2: that was being shot down number one
3: yeah that was number one
2: (laughs) did did you feel were you scared i mean do you remember being afraid or i don't
3: don't remember being afraid i Hmm. mean it's Uh, you know you got a lot of adrenaline going and you're just you're just uh, you're moving from one point to the next point you just got to get out of there yeah Yeah, and you know i just don't know that that i could i don't recall being obviously maybe after the fact it kind of catches up to you a little bit Mm -hmm. Uh, but during the time that you're there you you got the training i think that you go through all of flight school and, and all the other times that my military experience were, you just, you know, just do it. You just, you got a mission to do. You just go and, and move out smartly and get it done.
2: I remember being on the crew, uh, stepping onto the the Chinook, the CH-47s, mm-hmm. when we were in country getting ready to go to, flying into Baghdad, mm-hmm. and uh, we took fire from a certain position, and our tail gunner just started letting it rip, right? Mm-hmm. And he was like, you know, yelling out, like, you could tell he was excited mm-hmm. for the chance. Yeah. And all those infantry guys are looking at each other, uh, at each other through our nods, like, Get us to the ground as <laughs> quick as possible. I need to change your pants. <laughs> Who wants to be up here getting yeah. shot at yeah. <laughs> in the air? Yeah. <laughs> Forget that. I'd rather be shot yeah. out on the ground. Yeah. So that, I, I, I get that and understand You've got a very analytical mind, and the adrenaline of the moment took mm-hmm. over, but I would have needed a change of pants for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well,
3: it, it, perhaps. I yeah. mean, it, perhaps later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: So that so that was the first time you got shot down. Yes. Um, and then you move on from there and fly more missions, right?
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, totally. Uh, we would spend... And what to, part of Vietnam were you in? This was done in the southern part uh, near Saigon, just on the west side of Ga- Saigon. But we had, I mean, on the east side of Saigon. But we had a lot of remote bases where we staged out of for three days at a time. So we would, to work that area of operation, we would, a uh, place called Swan Lock. So that was out to the east of Long Bend. That's, Long Bend was the headquarters of the company that I was with. So, east of there was Long Ben, and I mean, uh, Swanlock, and we would spend three days working that area because the time that we would have taken from to go from home base to some of the missions that were out in that area was, would be 30 minutes just to fly there. Where if we had a crew that was stationed or staged out of an area that was closer, we could be on site in a matter of 10 minutes. So that, that time frame was the critical time frame. If we could pick up a, the injured soldier uh, and get them to a hospital within one hour, from the time of injury to the times of a medical, it was called the golden hour, and there was a 90% survival rate. Mm-hmm. And so that was our mission. So we wanted to be as close to the areas that we're going to be working uh, so that we didn't spend a lot of time just Flying to get there, and so we would we had four four standby areas, uh, Swanlock. Uh, we had of course out of our own home company the tanan Tainan, Tainin, and Nui Dot. So we had those four places that we would stage out of three days at a time, and we're, and you know the accommodations varied in these little staging areas to a tent or in some uh, a Conex container. We'd be sleeping in a Conex container when we weren't flying. And so it was kind of uh, less than comfortable. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but you're not going to war for the comfort, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so as you fly missions, you know, Doug, you're dealing with death and dying. You know, young men. Mm-hmm. Uh sometimes breathing their last and mm-hmm. spending that time in your helicopter. What, what was that like being that closely connected to these guys? I mean, obviously, you've got a mission. Your job is to fly or assist. Yeah. But what, what's it like being in that position?
3: Well, you know, the two guys in the front, pilot and co-pilot, their job was to get to, from point A to point B as quickly as we could. The crew in the back, the medic and the crew chief, were the guys that were really doing the job in the back. Once we got them on the helicopter, uh our job was to get them to the closest medical facility. Their job was to perform first aid, put up a, give them IVs, whatever the case may be. So we didn't get so involved so much with the actual patients in the back uh at all. In fact, you know, there's been some uh documentaries where they picked up uh uh, they just found the crew that had picked them up out of the lz and it's just it's just too hard the records were not there we don't know who they were we don't have their names on a manifest and they don't know who we were either all they were they were injured they were hurt conscious or unconscious and all they knew is they were going to get help somewhere Mm. so the pilots themselves didn't get that involved and i'm not saying s- some of them didn't but for the most part we were our job was to pick them up as quickly as we could and get them to where they needed to go as quickly as we could gotcha and then and then in the meantime as we're doing uh, flying from going to get them and flying them to a medical facility we're taking more missions on the radio Jeez. so as that one is complete we're launched back out to another pickup zone so there was a continuous flow it's just not a one and done i mean it it, in one instance we were flying 12 hours and which is right at the max limit for flying time Mm -hmm. for a crew and then as we would come down to get food and some sleep another aircraft would go out and pick up where we had left off. And we did that in this one particular instance that I recall. We did that for four consecutive days. Jeez. So we ended up, I ended up with close to 50 hours in that four days, which is, that's a lot of flying. Yeah, uh, Cause you're, you're never shutting the aircraft down. Uh, you're hot refueling. So you've got the engines running and you're sticking the fuel hose in there to fill up. And cause the Huey would only go for about two hours so, so you had to continuously stop, get fuel, go back out, and just continue to, to run air missions.
2: And you're doing it in extremely dangerous conditions and environment. Yeah,
3: and, yeah. you know, not every landing zone was a hostile landing zone. However, I mean, why are we going to that? landing zone someone has been injured and so at some point it was hostile yeah
2: Uh, yeah there's danger close no matter uh, what yeah
3: it was uh, somebody and and we would do it in day and night it doesn't make any difference when good weather or bad weather we just went out and did the best we could to, to get these missions i mean a lot of night missions are pretty frightening because obviously you can't see and You don't want the enemy to see you, so you have your lights turned off, for the most part, until it's the very end. Mm. So, yeah, it uh, it got to be—I mean, not every mission did you take fire, but you anticipated taking fire every mission. Mm. So you you always had a plan that your approach path was never the same— So if you were going to be coming in here multiple times, you never came in the same way twice because the enemy would figure out that's where you were going or where, so they could do that. You exited, uh, you know, a different way each time as well. So they didn't have the repetition of you're straight in, straight out. It was, you know, you'd vary vary those uh, approaches.
0: Mm.
2: Wow. So your second... um the second time you get knocked out of the sky, because <laughs> you know that's normal. Most people get shot down in their life. What 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 was going on on that particular mission?
3: Look, uh, we were going out, and it was a, this was a hoist mission. So in many cases, we cannot land the helicopter on the ground. Uh, we have to hover above the trees, above the jungle, and we have to lower a jungle penetrator. Uh, from the helicopter down on a cable, and they would strap the individual on the jungle penetrator, and then they would hoist them, and then we would hoist them up to the helicopter. So that is the most dangerous of all of our missions because we're sitting ducks. We're sitting above the trees, even though we're we're hovering down as low as we possibly could based on the terrain. I mean, our rotor blades are inches from the trees, uh, just to get as low a profile as we could. And so it, it, we're still a sitting duck though. So if you've got, uh, someone down on the cable that you got to bring up, you, you just can't exit because you got somebody on the cable and you just can't leave until they get up and get cleared. So, this one mission, uh, it was a hoist mission for a U.S. soldier, and we were going out, and he was injured, and so we had flown out there. We, uh, The artillery fire bases, you have to call them in advance so that you don't fly through any of their uh, artillery paths. If they paths. If they're on a firing mission, you don't want their big gun bullets zipping by your little helicopter, mm-hmm. so we would call them, coordinate, and... We would, and in some cases, we would have them cease fire because of our mission it was more important than what they were doing. So we were flying out there, and we got in the area. We're we're at uh, an altitude above small arms fire, so we're at about two thousand feet above the ground, anywhere from fifteen hundred to two thousand feet above the ground, and we tell them to pop a smoke grenade, and we would then and then. By the time it would filter up through the jungle canopy, we could see what color it was. So, and and we would use Kool-Aid colors. So the Kool-Aid colors we would identify as Choo Choo Cherry or <laughs> uh, Goofy Grape or Lefty Lemon or whatever the case may be. And so uh, this one particular mission they had uh, pop uh, red smoke, and we could see where it was. And so now. We're uh, talking amongst the crew and said, "Okay, this is a hoist mission. This is where we're going, to, we're going to come in from this direction. Go in there. Our exit path is this way." So we had a full briefing of what to expect on each mission. We did this on every mission, so we were had. So now you want to get down from your high altitude down to the low altitude as quickly as you can. So we did some crazy helicopter maneuvers to get. To minimize that exposure, we get down to the top, and now we're on the treetops. And so we get kind of disorder not disoriented, but we're not exactly 100% sure exactly where the guy is. And so we're kind of now hovering around the trees. And we can kind of, we're talking to him on the radio, and they're giving us some guidance to take 100 meters to your right or 100 meters to your left or whatever the case. And we flew directly over. Uh, uh, vc uh Viet Cong, and he opened up his ak-47 on us and it's you know some people will argue he said well you can't hear an ak-47 above the the noise of the helicopter and with your helmet on well that's that's just not true <laughs> you it is very clear what an ak-47 sounds like mm. and our crew uh started uh, shouting that we were taking hits and we were taking fire and we had to abandon that mission because the mission then changes uh, from getting the, from saving the guy that's on the ground to saving my crew from crashing into the jungle because we had taken 25 hits on this particular, particular one. And so we were losing fuel. Fuel is not so bad as the engine oil in the transmission fluid. Uh, engines do not run well without oil and transmissions do not run without transmission fluid. So to to control the helicopter, I needed to find a place to get it on the ground as quickly as I could. And I found a clearing about two kilometers away and we landed there. And within about um, about. 20 or 30 minutes we now we didn't know who was there i mean it was just an area clear enough for me to put a helicopter in i don't know if the the vc were there or good guys were there i didn't it just wasn't an opportunity to choose so we, we about 20 minutes later we could see some armored personnel carriers were coming around and they started circling around us so then i felt secure i also had was talking to uh, gunships that were above us so if we started taking any enemy fire when we were on the ground i could direct them to where it was and that they would shoot it up mm. for me okay so that was the second time mm. <laughs> and, and and fortunately it was the last time i was shot down yeah well that's good
2: <laughs> did you did you feel nerves
3: on that when yeah, that was happening again uh, the adrenaline's going yeah. and and you know, you're, once I felt secure in the area and uh, that I wasn't worried about the VC coming up and taking me out, then I started going around counting bullet holes. Mm. And so we started counting and it was uh, it was then that we discovered one of the bullets had come through the instrument panel and had stopped in the one of the gauges and shattered the glass on the co-pilot side. Uh-huh. And... Had it had any more velocity, uh, it would have probably taken him out with a headshot. Jeez. So he would have been killed. Wow! But he, none of us were injured. Uh, it was you know a controlled emergency landing.
2: Wow! So. What do you was that your most nerve wracking mission when you were over there? Were there? No. What do you think was most nerve wracking? Um,
3: some another hoist mission or two was uh, probably a, uh, a night hoist mission where you have no visible lights out and you're still trying to hover above the jungle and minimize your light exposure I think that was pretty tense that was pretty puckered up on that one yeah. uh, some of the other ones that uh, that causes me some uh, anguish is uh, we were doing another hoist mission I did 25 hoist missions while I was there which is a lot wow, yeah. for an average uh so on this one hoist mission, we were picking him up. And as the patient was coming up and he had just cleared, was just clearing the trees, the enemy was sh- uh, shooting him. And he was taking additional hits while he, while we were trying to get him on board. And so as soon as we got him, of course, we left the area. But th- that's you know, it's just gut-wrenching to see that happen.
2: Yeah, yeah. Did you guys, did you know if he survived or did he make, no? No. no? Yeah, you never knew the no. outcomes really, yeah. No. It's probably better for your psychology as a pilot too. Well,
3: to yeah, it it is in some cases. It, we just didn't know, and that was okay we didn't know. Mm. Um, because like you said, it would probably just drive us crazy. Yeah. Uh, but we had ways to release some of this anxiety and this, uh, I mean, we weren't on 24-7. I mean, we had, uh, we would fly for three or four days at a, and straight, and we'd get a couple days downtime so we could go in and watch movies or whatever the case may be, take a little break. How
2: how kinetic was that environment over there, though? I mean, how how, you know, you talked about how often you had to fly in those four days. In you know, you did get breaks from time to time, but mm-hmm. could you feel the did you feel the amount of violence happening in that country just from your missions that you were flying? Did you know how bad it had gotten?
3: Well, I mean certainly we're witnessing a lot of people being killed and shot. And so I mean it was from the, the US soldiers to the the Republic of Vietnam army to the koreans to the australians i mean we saw the 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 horrors of the war i mean we saw the people coming in and they didn't have a leg because they stepped on a booby trap and we saw those being loaded into our helicopters and so i, I hate to say it but you car compartment carpent carp, well compartmentalize yeah that, i can't say that word i got gotcha. you uh, some of those instances where you just didn't let it get to you for any length of time, and you d- knew you had to, you had to take care of it, and you took care of it as best you could, as quickly as you could.
2: When, all through the course of that, uh, in the war, did you, I'm sure you didn't have very many thoughts about this, but did you feel that you were making a difference on the ground there? and Did you feel like you were there for a just cause? Did you feel like it was right and proper?
3: Uh, I can't say that I knew that it was right and proper. I mean, I, I knew what I had to do and I liked doing what I was doing. Uh, it wasn't until I watched the Ken Burns series on the Vietnam War that I truly get to see all of the political crap that was going on during the time that i was over there and i didn't i don't know that i really saw that because we didn't have the media if uh, you were lucky to get uh armed forces network radio uh that was your sole source of information uh sometimes it you know may not be of portrayed really what's going on. So we didn't have a good... Of course, there was no such thing as the Internet of Computers or any of that stuff. So if you didn't get Armed Forces Radio to hear what's going on, um, you're just really kind of oblivious to it.
2: Did you? Did you... So through the course of that and then getting to see, obviously, the Ken Burns documentary, you probably didn't think a whole lot about the socio political or economical you know, reasons for being there. No. You're just on the ground. You're doing your job. And yeah. I think that's something that the American people should know and understand, and especially from that generation, is that you're given a very clear course of action and a job to do and you're put into a number slot and position so somebody else doesn't have to mm-hmm. go do that. And you're sent over there so that somebody else doesn't have to be there.
3: Yeah, exactly.
2: The other reality is what? I lose my dignity and run to Canada? Yeah. You <laughs> well, know? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Well, I some mean... Some people so did that. Some
3: people did that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know of any, but some people did that. Yeah, certainly. But, it, yeah, we did... I don't know that we were that... At least I wasn't that keenly aware of all of that that yeah. was going on politically.
2: Well, that's good, because it probably kept you in a pretty clear mental yeah. frame while you were over yeah. there.
3: When did you When did you first, how long were you over there for? On that I was there from June of 1970 to May of 1971. So almost an entire year. Almost a year. And the only reason I didn't spend an entire year was my unit stood down and was being replaced with another helicopter uh, unit. And since I was only uh six weeks from uh dros coming back anyway, they just said that they would not uh transit you know give me another assignment to this other company to uh to continue to fly so I had a six week drop, so I came home uh six weeks early
2: now were you in a certain were you in a squadron was that what it was called It or? was a medical company okay medical company mm-hmm. did all of your guys make it back all the should all the gunships make it better? not gunships, but the dust-off crews, did they all?
3: I don't, uh, while I was there, yeah. we did not have any casualties Wow. in our company. Now, we had some injured, Yeah. Uh, but I don't re- think that we had any casualties uh, as a result of any of our missions. That's pretty now, amazing. Yeah, now, I think prior, just prior to me coming to the unit, they had lost uh, a couple of uh, crew uh, they lost her crew completely, and so yeah, that was still fresh on their minds. But yeah. but I don't I don't think I did while I was there.
2: Mm. Did you Did you form some pretty tight friendships through your oh, time yeah. over there?
3: Yeah, like uh this uh, Vietnam Dustoff Association that I belong with. Uh, we're having a reunion, and some of these guys are guys that that I flew with. Some of them are pilots, and some of them are crew chiefs, and some of them are medics. So we all uh, at some point a good number of us flew together Wow so yeah it's good to see them again That's pretty
2: special yeah it is do you how important is the camaraderie between pilot and his assistant right there on the on the team as far as working together in Oh yeah situations? I mean it's it's
3: essential that if you don't have a good working crew then you're push putting everybody else on that helicopter at, 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 at in jeopardy. So you really had a good working relationship. You know, I I don't think uh, that I can recall anybody that I said, "Uh, I'm not going to fly with him. (laughs) That's awesome. That that I just, we were just a bunch of good young warrant officers and some second and first lieutenants that were just having to, you know, we're there and we're just working together.
2: It's probably pretty special to be a part of such an elite company of men though because you're doing things at a very high intelligence level. You're gonna make things you know, decisions very quickly. Mm-hmm. It's vital that you do the job and in a very short amount of time. Because when you get in an infantry unit like I did, there's a few guys I wasn't wanting to kick down (laughs) (laughs) doors I won't say any names, but, you know, it's just the truth. You're in a very, uh, you're in a top-tier position when you're having to do something like that at such a high level. Um, You're among, you're usually going to be amongst great men doing that. Yeah,
3: and, you know, we had a lot of the crew chiefs and the medics, you know, we valued what they had to offer to our crew while they weren't the pilots so they weren't officers uh they had a they had great value and we we treasured their value and their opinion in some cases you know we would take their opinions and their ideas and we would integrate that into the in the particular mission it just wasn't my way or the highway it was a collective I and mean, we're in this together mm-hmm. and we had so we have great crews that worked very well together and you know we had some of our favorites you know obviously you got the, your favorite medic and your favorite crew chief and your favorite helicopter and your favorite co-pilots i mean that you that you just had a good click with yeah. and that you knew that they were they were there and uh you could you could count on them
2: that's special what now that you look back on your career and your your time in vietnam and you know those 11 months you were over there with your unit what what are you most proud of
3: well the probably the the thing that i'm most proud of is in, and i mention it when i give talks uh, about my experiences in vietnam i bring out my dog tags and i and i say that the dog tags for me today are a reminder that there is a vietnam veteran walking around today because of something I did 52 years ago. And that's what gives me the satisfaction uh, that, you know, I did the right thing. Yeah. And wow, that's powerful.
2: What, what do you think, um, when did you first realize when you got back the position in the state of the country and the way things were?
3: You know, I've never really been politically minded, to I just, that never intrigued me, and, you know, I went from, as soon as I got back from Vietnam, I had a, my, my next assignment was a dust-off assignment at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, uh, uh, picking up people from the 82nd Airborne who jumped into the LZs that, and didn't land very well. So, I mean, I transitioned over into a, a non-combative uh dust off roll and the mission was really basically the same you go pick up the injured and you get them to a medical facility as quickly as you could and so that was day and night and all kinds of weather and it was just a good transition just to continue on with what I had learned in the past Mm. so
2: you didn't really have to deal too much with what was going on on the ground you didn't really feel that so much no no what what do you think did some of that come back to haunt you, your time in Vietnam, and some of the things that you had had to do, and did that stuff bother you when you got back to the States?
3: You know, uh, of course, uh, the PTSD is not something that was even acknowledged uh, back then. And I think that certainly uh, that I had a certain level of PTSD, though it wasn't classified as such, I know that some other uh, pilot friends of mine uh, suffered uh, considerably as a result of that de- a debilitating uh, issue, but I—I I mean, I certainly—you know—I never never sought treatment, or you know, I just kind of dealt with it. You know, being around others that have gone through the similar s- circumstance, we can talk through some stuff together, like peer counseling. Of course, that wasn't called peer counseling then, but I mean, it really was. That's what we were doing. Right. We were there for each other.
2: Mm, that's awesome. That's uh, And has that played a key role in your life now and having some of those people still talking to you?
3: Well, sure. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know that I have any, fl- I certainly don't have any flashbacks or anything like that to deal with. Uh, but still, it's good to uh, talk to those that have experienced the same experiences yeah. when we have these reunions.
2: That's awesome. What, when uh, you got back and how, how much longer did you serve in the military before you got out?
3: Okay. So uh, after, uh, so I mentioned that I flew dust off at Fort Bragg, uh, North Carolina for three, three years. And then um, I met my current wife there. And so we got married. in. Fort That's Bra- cool. And so we're coming up on 48 years of wow. marriage. So then um, after uh, after Fort Bragg, we, uh, I went through uh, training at Fort Rucker for six weeks uh, to be a uh, flight examiner, which is uh, checks other pilots on their instrument flying. And then we went to Germany and I was flying Hueys and OH-58s uh, in Germany for three years with a Initially, it was a CAV unit, and then it turned into a a combat aviation battalion. And so I did three years of flying with them, and that was good. And then I was assigned to come back to teach at Fort Rucker. So I was teaching initial entry combat skills at Fort Rucker for a little while, and then I went over to teach another course for another while I mean, I'm staying at Fort Rucker and then the Blackhawk uh, was being introduced to the, the Army inventory and I was able to get a Blackhawk transition. Wow. And started I was in flight instructor for the Black Hawk and I was teaching others how to fly the Black Hawk. And I did that for, uh, to the end of my career at, uh, at Rucker. And then I moved to Fort Benning, Georgia. And I took a, uh, helped take a Huey unit and convert them over to a Blackhawk company. So I was teaching uh, uh, them additional skills in the Blackhawk. And then we took that entire company to Germany again to be the first Blackhawk company in Europe. And after, so now I'm coming up on my 16 plus years Mm -hmm. in the Army. And I got a fixed wing transition. Which is uncalled for. I mean, just you just don't. I I had always put in for it. You know, I'd asked the the gods to be at the (laughs) at the at the personnel center, and uh, they granted me a fixed wing transition. So I was flying a a U twenty one and a C twelve at Fort Knox, Kentucky, for the commanding general.
0: Wow! So that (laughs) that,
3: and that and I finished my twenty years. with that assignment, oh, you get the retirement. Yeah.
2: Wow, man! How many guys go through Vietnam and then want to serve an additional, however many odd years? That probably yeah, doesn't it, happen it, all that often. No,
3: it's it's not. It's not a, the percentage is not that high. Of a lot of a lot of guys got out, and, and I think it it could have been because of the PTSD. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it was uh, the army was a good career for me. I enjoyed it. Uh, the Army was talking about sending me to Central America at the uh, flying a, a C-12, and I just thought that I had had enough, Yeah, and I decided to, uh, and, and I had coming up on 20 years, and I decided to go ahead and retire.
2: What was the transition like between the Huey and the Blackhawk, and how um, did you feel like when you saw the Blackhawk were you thinking to yourself, man, I wish we would have had these? <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I wish we had them because there's a lots of uh, one. It's a, a lot more maneuverable mm-hmm. than a Huey. The the Huey was a great workhorse for the army. I mean, yeah. it's a good helicopter.
2: I've flown in both, and I enjoyed my because I had a Vietnam pilot fly around in a Huey out in Minnesota, and he took some he did some combat maneuvers mm-hmm. and stuff, and I nearly lost my lunch, but I enjoyed mm-hmm. every bit
3: of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're good helicopters. Yeah. I liked. Uh, the the smoothness of the Blackhawk was a lot smoother ride aerodynamically, and there was a lot more safety features that were built into the Blackhawk that the Huey did not have. So I mean, the the Blackhawk was a really a, a good good airframe, good <laughs> helicopter.
2: But but it's probably for some guys. It's probably because I've heard some Vietnam old old school Vietnam warriors, you know, saying. I- I prefer the Huey. You know, and it's probably like uh, the Tesla to the Corvette, right? Like, sometimes you just got to hear that clunky motor, right? You got to have well, a little bit of roar.
3: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I understand what they're saying. Yeah. and Certainly, uh, I, I enjoyed it. It mm-hmm. was a good helicopter to fly. But the Huey... I, I got a lot of time in the Huey. yeah, so
2: you're good with it. yeah, <laughs> but how important and imperative was it for you with your uh, wife being at home and and really sticking by your side through that whole course of your military career? Well,
3: you know, the funny thing is my wife was an army brat, so the oh. so she never knew any other life other than military. okay, so I mean, it was an easy transition. She just continued to march on like she'd always been as a as a kid. so I mean she she had been to Germany and been to wherever, I mean, wow. all over the world with her dad being in the military because he was a career 20-year guy. And so he, the, that's that's the only life they knew. Mm. So I mean, it was easy.
2: That 48 years of love has to be pretty special to yeah. you, yeah. having <laughs> her by your side. Absolutely. Yeah, that's awesome. So when you got out of the military, what did you transition into? Where did you?
3: So, live? uh after I got out, I did not seek any sort. I didn't have my civilian um, air, air, airline transport license to transition or to an airlines. And I really thought, well, I'd just, I mean, 20 years of flying was a lot of fun and a lot of good times. And I would try to do something else. So I went into the financial services industry where we were serving military families. So I kept the military connection. But I um went over on to the financial planning kind of side of the house
2: How important do you think it is for guys that are struggling when they get out to find that place of service again? How important do you think that is? Well, I
3: mean, I think it's really important because they've done whether you do twenty years or or four years. It doesn't make any difference. I think that anyone getting out transitioning out of the military needs to find something that they can embrace and really find purpose in and I found that that this transition where I was helping military families financially to meet their goals to protect their families from sudden death or you know from from the loss of a one of the parents or whatever that was really really a parallel to flying dust off so I mean I was really saving them uh in their in their Injured financial world and showing them how to to transition into a better life and to fulfill their fulfill long term goals so
2: we were just having this talk yesterday I was on this talk with um, our, our friend Clint Bruce who's over at uh, trg he runs trident response group he was a navy seal and he played mm-hmm. for the Baltimore Ravens and mm-hmm. the New Orleans Saints and then he became, you know, an officer, but he uh, he was talking to us about how that period of service is so indicative. Everybody signs on the dotted line and so you need to find something in service mm-hmm. and that's where your hotspot is, but he mm-hmm. said he said, "When it comes to soft skills, there's no, there's nothing more powerful than soft skills." He said, "Because you can have the tangibles, and those things might cross over into the world mm-hmm. of what you do, mm-hmm. but the intangibles are mm-hmm. so massive, mm-hmm. and that's why you find so many incredible leaders mm-hmm. stepping out of pilot roles or special operations mm-hmm. roles, where they're going in to start their own businesses mm-hmm. and then helping mm-hmm. so many others." Because you got to be on time, right? You yeah. Gotta, you got to show courage. You have yeah. to have integrity. Yeah. Yeah. You have to work through fear to get mm-hmm. to the other side mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. And those are so many soft skills that add up sure. in the civilian world. So you took that into finance. You probably yeah. didn't ever think about working in finance, did you?
3: No, actually, when I was first approached to come work for the company, I thought, look, I don't know anything about a mutual fund or, <laughs> or a life insurance policy. Yeah. And he says, you don't need to worry about that. We'll teach you that. It's your, your people skills that is going to take you into the business. And That's so I, cool. I spent 25 years wow with them. So in reality, I've only had two jobs. Wow. One, <laughs> so as an Army pilot and as a financial planner, for uh, for military people.
2: That's awesome. Why do you think the, you know, I wanted to hit this topic real quick, but why do you think the American people reacted the way they did to to what they saw overseas? And why, why do you think that happened that way to where they turned so negative against us? Against yeah. you guys in particular, but against all of us as military?
3: Uh, hmm. Well, I, as far as the Vietnam side, I think that they they saw the political... Uh, side of it more than anybody else and you know that we had you know I, I'm not the hippies you know they were doing their thing and it was just and then you know the Kent State incident so there was a lot of things that were going on that were anti-military and anti-government and so I think we had we were in a losing battle at the home front uh, because of all that political and you know you got Presidents are making decisions that are conflicting with what really needs to be happening. And it's just it was just a big, big mess. And I think that's one of the things that the military, uh, uh, why the military was so uh, disrespected when they came back. Now, I think I think it's turned around and I think that the the level of patriotism has Increased a hundredfold as a result of being attacked uh, on 9/11, and I think that the 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 United States came together uh, for the first time in many many years. That we were, hey, we gotta we gotta band together because uh, we're not going to take this shit anymore.
2: Probably, really, since World War Two.
3: Well, I mean, that's true,
2: too, yeah. That's probably the last time, though, we banded together before that. Yeah. Which is crazy to think about. I mean, you're talking about, like, 70 years at the time, you know? It's it's sad that it takes that to bring us together and that... Mode, Because, you know, you see, obviously, a lot of divisiveness nowadays, Mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. And it's just that cannot be the way that it is Mm -hmm. in order for this country to work at its Mm -hmm. best. We're a giant melting pot. Right. That's what makes us great. We all have different ideas. But being able to come together at the dinner table and discuss those things, Mm -hmm. people don't understand. Guys like you and me, we don't really care what you think, you know, as long as we're moving towards the constitutional Mm -hmm. right of Mm -hmm. what we Mm -hmm. started Mm -hmm. and established. Right. Now, once you start shaking the foundation of that, there's going to be a yeah. whole other discussion. Yeah. Yeah. But most of the, the time, anything between that is loose, right? And we can have those discussions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's important to be able to have that. But, uh, you know, finally, I'd like to go into, Doug, what, what would you tell people who were thinking about, you know, stepping into a career, either in the Army or, or aviation specifically? What would you tell them?
3: Well, I mean, if if – I think you got to follow your passion. I mean, I think that's really the military is not for everyone. Uh, The military, uh, the the military is for one that is uh, can be disciplined and and has some core values of uh, the you mentioned courage and respect and integrity and service and. all of those things, those core values play a huge role in the military service. Not everybody's cracked up to be that way. But I think the, the core of the military, the good leaders in the military, exemplify those core values. So if those are important to you as an individual, then, uh, then the military may be the, the, a way to inha- you know, have a career. I mean it is certainly forty years is feasible if you so choose to yeah but uh as far as the aviation side of the house man it's a blast <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's it's a blast to be able to go out and fly uh, a helicopter and do do neat things or an air, fly an airplane i mean I've had some crazy instances in my airplane experience too mm. uh that um Oh, okay. I want to hear that we're, now. We're, You're going to bring it up and <laughs> not going to tell me. I got to well, know. <laughs> so, so the very first, uh, the U-21 is a small uh, five-passenger uh, twin-engine airplane that we, we would fly the ROTC commander in. So we had a one-star and an aid. And so this one particular instance, I had just finished my transition into this airplane, and I was— the the instructor pilot and I were taking the one star from Fort Knox to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And so on the way, I mean, the weather is bad. This is not a pressurized aircraft. So you can't get above 10,000 feet. So we're in the weather. It's just beating us to crap. And so we can't land at Fort Leavenworth. So we have to land at Kansas city international, which is only, you know, it's a 30 minute, car ride over it's close so that wasn't a problem so we're we're coming in on the approach and we break out of the clouds there's the runway and i'm flying and we're getting ready to touch down we touch down and then the aircraft starts to lean to the left and i thought i don't think i've ever felt that before then it starts to lean to the right and our main landing gear was collapsing So we're running down the runway with our nose gear, and so we're we're running down, uh, skidding down the runway. Oh my gosh! And so then they had to close the runway because we're stuck on it. And so they've called us, you know, the aircraft behind us was a United passenger airplane, and so it says United uh, 234. You'll have to go around. Army has had an incident on a runway. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you stopped traffic in Kansas stopped, City. I, I stopped traffic at Kansas City International uh one day. So they came out very quickly, within about fifteen minutes, to put a nylon strap around our nose gear and drug us off the runway. <laughs> so that was uh that was a fun time. You thought you were done with your crash landings. <laughs> yeah, just when I thought I was done.
2: Wow. Well, Doug, I really, really appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast and sharing your story. Any other anecdotes that you might share, or any other ideas? That no, you I to mean, get I, across?
3: I think you've uh, time, I think you've hit uh, pretty much them all. In fact, you brought up some that I'd had forgotten a little bit. Anyway, but yeah, I think it's uh It was a great career. I I don't. Uh, um, uh, I don't regret anything that I did uh, while I was there, you know, I, I still speak at, uh, I had high schools and I speak at other groups uh, and I share my experiences about Vietnam and I'm okay with doing that because it's a living history that, that a lot of high schoolers and, and middle schoolers don't get to experience. So as long as I can continue to share that message, the positive aspects of, the military, and what we were doing, especially during that time frame, and 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 represent, re- represent us collectively, well, then I'm going to continue to do that. And I appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast as well.
2: Very glad to have you honored, in fact, sir. I appreciate everything you've done uh, for this nation. And, you know, when I say welcome home, I mean that. I don't just say that easily or cheaply because I feel like you guys uh, were – the buffer that gave us the chance Mm -hmm. to come home the way that we did the Mm -hmm. opportunity to come home feeling i walk into dfw on when i'm coming back on leave and i remember walking down this clear tunnel i'm on leave and i just come back from you know six months in iraq and i'm coming back as i'm walking down this clear tunnel i hear our name i hear my unit and the marines that are with us Mm -hmm. too announced on the PA system mm. at DFW and I see this whole airport stand up get mm. out of their chair turn around and give us yeah. a standing ovation I was in tears sure absolutely I can't, you you gave me that opportunity mm. Because if it hadn't been for that, who knows the way that the people would have mm-hmm. expressed themselves mm-hmm. nowadays. Because if you're not blaming one thing, you're always looking for something else to blame. Sure. That happens. Sure. I tell people all the time that nowadays when I hear my friends you know, start to lean into some of the conspiracies a little bit, mm-hmm. I'm like, you be careful because that could be the thing that people grab onto to where – then it becomes, well, these wars were completely unjust. in mm-hmm. Iraq and Afghanistan, I don't really care how you feel about them. Um, you might think they were. But on the other side of that, there is an anti-patriotic movement mm-hmm. where you start to question everything that our troops have done. And then yeah. you start to blame not only the politicians, but the men who went off and fought those wars sure. and women. So when I hear that, it's it's I, I'm very careful with guys because I'm like, if you think we can't descend back into what we went through, with Vietnam, we certainly can. Mm-hmm. So don't put us there. Yeah, Let's keep the fervor going and yeah. let's enjoy what we have, right? Yeah,
3: exactly. Well,
2: I appreciate you, Doug. Thank you so much. And for those of you listening, a uh, rare treat getting to sit down with the Vietnam dust-off pilot. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I'm sure you will. And uh, for those of you who are listening, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And most of all, don't forget our legacies are the mission.
1: This has been the Veterans Project Podcast with our founder, Tim K. Check us out at www.thevetsproject.com, on Instagram at The Veterans Project, Facebook, The Veterans Project, and Twitter at Project underscore Veteran. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, our legacies are the mission.